0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado Olympic swimmer Missy Franklin was literally the picture of joy. It was July 2012, and she was on her way to the London Games. And in a video, she and her teammates lip-sync to Call Me Maybe. Hey, I just
1: met you, this is crazy.
0: Franklin whirls and twirls through the airplane, her smile as wide as the aisle. Seven million people saw that video. Hundreds of millions watched in the following days as she won four gold medals and a bronze in swimming. Then in the 2016 Rio Olympics, crushing disappointment. She got one gold medal for swimming a preliminary race in a team relay. Here she is a couple of days later talking to an NBC reporter.
2: When I had some of that alone time, there's, there's definitely some tears and some disappointment, but I would just call up my mom, get some words of encouragement and keep on plugging along. <laughs> we'll
0: notice the laughter there, but it masked a deep depression. Now, Franklin, who was raised in the Denver suburbs, attends the University of Georgia. She says she's regaining her joy and not ruling out a bid for the 2020 Olympics. Missy, thanks for being with us again.
2: Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure, you guys.
0: Lots of people from lots of different walks of life uh, deal with depression. I do wonder if you think your experience has been different, though, because you're an elite athlete.
2: You know, I think everyone's experience with depression is different. I will never forget, you know, I try not to read comments on things, but I will never forget. I kind of accidentally came across a comment under the, the article after Rio, where I had first come out about being depressed. And someone had commented and said, how dare this person feel depressed? She's had so many blessings in her life. She's a multiple Olympic gold medalist. And I remember just being floored. Like I had the wind completely knocked out of me and it broke my heart. And I think everyone's experience with depression is so different. It comes on for different reasons. It lasts a different amount of time for each person. It's severity of symptoms are different for everyone. So I think my being an elite athlete definitely had a unique impact on it, but also just being me had a unique impact on my depression.
0: It's so interesting. Yeah. The person who says you're on top of the world, you have had an Olympic career. How dare you be depressed? Um, Bring that person into your world. In other words, what are the pressures an elite athlete is under that make that, just really painful in addition to exciting.
2: For me, I think my root cause was I had based my identity completely into the sport of swimming. And I hadn't realized I was doing that because for the first however many years of my career, things were going So well, so of course it was easy for me to say, no, I'm so much more than what I can do in a pool, you know, while I'm out there breaking world records and winning gold medals. But as soon as that goes away, it's like, oh my gosh, what else do I have to offer? Like, I, I am nothing if not swimming, if not success. Like I just had these horrible thoughts about myself that were so critical, feeling like I wasn't worthy. I wasn't doing anything right. I wasn't worthy of love, of kindness. If I wasn't able to go out and do the one thing I felt like I was supposed to be doing, which was swimming well.
0: Oh, my gosh. I have to think that this is just a pandemic in the Olympic community. I mean, what a natural thing if you're the top bobsledder or you're the top... Uh, you know, a basketball team uh, to naturally think that's your identity. D- don't you think this is probably just epidemic among elite oh, anything?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it is. And I'm so happy, you know, we have some incredible people, you know, in swimming alone and in the entire Olympic movement, of course, Michael Phelps is a huge advocate for mental health. That's and right. he's talked a lot about his personal experience. And then swimming, we have Alison Schmidt as well. And You know, we have these incredible figures that are really standing up and being vocal about it, which we need so much because it is. And it may not come during your career, but a lot of Olympic athletes face depression during their transition period. They've done this one thing their whole life. And now all of a sudden it's over. And they have to go out there and figure out who they are without this thing. And it's such a hard time. And I cannot imagine how many people go through this. And I really want to work on having more resources available for those elite athletes so they know that first off, they're not alone, but that there is so many things after sport that they can look forward to and there's still so many wonderful things to come in their life
0: well we'll ask you about that in just a bit what you see for the future (laughs) but um at at the risk of making this sound like a therapy session tell me something (laughs) that that tell me something that you love about yourself outside of your ability to swim
2: yeah no it's i love that question thank you um i think for me i i love my generosity You know, I personally don't get a happier feeling than when I know I've made someone else happy and when I've made someone else's day. And I love that feeling. And that was actually a huge part of me getting through my depression was realizing how much happier I was when I felt like I was giving back.
0: What is your identity today?
2: I think I was able to really work my way back to finding my identity in my faith. Um, my faith has been a huge part of my life since high school. And for me personally, when I'm able to live out every day, knowing first and foremost that I'm a loved daughter of God, that puts everything in perspective for me and feeling like I'm shedding His light and His love to every person that I come across every day in my heart and mind, I feel like that's infinitely more important than anything I could ever do in a pool.
0: If we might go back to the, the specifics of this sport, uh, because that, that still is a part of your identity. I mean, do you still consider yourself a swimmer? I have to think you do. <laughs>
2: right, I do. Yep. I do. And, you know, I've kind of come to the point where I like to phrase it as swimming has been a huge part of my life and a huge part of who I am but it does not define me.
0: You swam at the U.S. Nationals this summer and uh, failed to reach the finals in your events. Mm-hmm. Do you see more Olympic competition in your future or swimming uh, in a sort of different way?
2: You know, I'm going to try. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've i had a really rocky road. Um, after Rio, I got surgery on both of my shoulders and that recovery process has been really tough. I'm still in a lot of pain and training is really hard. I'm trying to find that balance between, you know, dealing with this pain that I'm in and also getting enough training in and working hard and it's just a lot and it can be really overwhelming. So, I'm still looking at different options and different training plans and working through it with my coach trying to figure out what's best but my ultimate goal is Tokyo in 2020 and whether I get there or not I'm going to know that I I fought every day to to be there.
0: You indeed have a new coach. You are at the University yes. of Georgia these days. Yes. Did you think of quitting swimming in the depths of your depression?
2: Oh, absolutely. I thought about it every day. <laughs> hundred percent. And especially after going through both of my surgeries um, and working my way through that, um, there's still days where I think about it.
0: Listen, I, I think as much uh, as your story is about swimming, it is often about your close ties to family because your parents okay. have just been such a, an integral part of your story. And they, I think your dad put it to me this way once that they were able to have you a bit later in life so that more of their careers were behind them and they could really dedicate themselves to kind of to following you and to supporting you and to making your Olympic career possible. And I wonder what they think of your struggle with depression, but also that so much of your identity was wrapped up in being a swimmer.
2: I can say this. I think my battle with depression and what I went through was easily a hundred times harder on my parents than it was on me. Um, I think having them watch this bouncing daughter of joy and happiness that they had their entire life become someone in that darkness, trying to find my way out and doing as much as they could, but still not what they felt like was enough to just reach in and pull me out of this. Like this was something I had to go through. But now being the place where I am, it's amazing, you know, having my parents look at me and tell me how proud they are of me and look at the woman I am now because of what I went through and to have them have more pride in this woman here than they've ever had in me before.
0: Do they um, do they feel responsible? Do you think that they are partly responsible for, like, raising you in a way that made swimming too much a part of your identity?
2: Oh, heavens no. Heavens no. My parents had zero responsibility in that. If anything, they, they did everything they could to make sure that wasn't the case. Huh. I worked every day. My parents were constantly communicating with me, making sure I had enough balance that... I was, you know, able to go to school and get all my homework done, but see my friends and, you know, go out and see a movie with them or go to dinner. And they always, 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 it's the best thing they'd ever, ever done was love me as me. Never Missy the swimmer. I never in a million years felt that pressure from them. I think that was 110% internal.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is the champion swimmer Missy Franklin, who's from Colorado and who is talking about her struggle with depression. Okay, I'd like two pieces of advice from you. One is for a, an Olympic hopeful today. Maybe there's someone listening who wants to to excel in a particular sport. What would you tell them, especially as it relates to your experience with depression? And then what, what message might you have for the broader population about what you've learned about depression?
2: Well, for the young athlete that really wants to strive to that goal, I would just encourage them in what I have learned and that make sure along the way and throughout that incredible journey that they remember the most important things about who they are and that they are not defined by a win, by a loss, by a sport. They're defined by the things they do, the kind of person they are, the way that they live their life. And to always hold on to that, you know, and then through thick and thin of what sport is can be so unpredictable that they'll always be rooted in who they really are. And same for the general population. I would say I was so sick of the cliches that people were telling me, like (laughs) there's a light at the end of the tunnel, like there's a plan, you know, like all this stuff. Because when you're in the thick of it, you hear things like that and you're like, okay, great. Like, yeah, I get that I'll learn something from this one day, but what about right now? Those are the toughest moments. And it's those moments that I would want to encourage people in and say that there is... So much more for you that as hard as this time is, the person that you are going to be on the other side of it is going to be a person you are going to be able to be proud of and love for the rest of your life.
0: Do you see depression as something you get over or always keep at bay?
2: I think it's something you always carry with you. I wouldn't, I, would, I don't know if I would use the term keep at bay. Because it almost makes it sound like it's kind of encroaching on you at all times, but I would say you can carry it, and the more you learn how to handle it, and the more you take away and grow from it, you know, the lighter and lighter and lighter that weight is. Uh,
0: do you know the song that "I Would Be Good" by Alanis Morissette?
2: Uh. Maybe if I heard
0: it. Maybe if you heard it. I have, I've called up the lyrics because you're reminding me so much of it, that I would be good even if I did nothing, that I would be good even if I got the thumbs down, that I would be good if I got and stayed sick, that I would be good even if I gained 10 pounds. Uh, I guess what I hear in you is this idea of holding on to something that is strong, is permanent in the face of all of the obstacles we can, you know, face in life.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, I I hope this doesn't come off cocky in any way, but one of the biggest things I've had to learn is how to love myself unconditionally. I think that was a huge part of it is unless I was doing well in the pool, unless I was checking all of these boxes, I I wasn't loving myself.
0: Missy Franklin, nice to talk to you again.
2: Always. Thank you so much for having me, guys. That I would be
1: good even if I did nothing that I would be good even if I got a thumbs down.
0: Swimmer Missy Franklin is from Centennial, south of Denver. She now attends the University of Georgia.
3: If I got a stick.
0: Sick. Colorado Wonders is our new project where you tell us what you wonder about in this state, and we get the answers. 18-year-old Grant Golevich wonders about something. It has to do with a day back in April when his school and hundreds of others closed so teachers, staff, and students could march on the state capitol. His question, since those protests, what, if anything, has the state done to increase money for Colorado schools? Our education reporter Jenny Brundine met up with Grant to give him some answers.
3: Hey, Grant. How are you doing? I'm Jenny.
4: Hi, Jenny. I'm doing well. How about yourself?
3: Uh, Doing well. So you got here on a bike.
4: Yes, I actually got here on a bike and light rail combination.
3: That's awesome. Why was it school finance that so pique your interest?
4: Well, um, I've noticed the school's had a lot of strain lately, and part of the issue with businesses or schools or any sort of institution is if they don't have money, they can't get the job done. And I heard a lot in the school, well, we'd love to do this, but we're, we're short some money, and so we can't really afford to do this project right now. And I noticed last spring many schools closed and many teachers protested at the state capitol I wondered uh, what John Hickenlooper and the Colorado legislator has done to address some of these teacher concerns regarding funding for schools and
3: retirement. Basically, you're wondering if anything came of that. Yes. That's correct. So let's start with retirement. So teachers are members of something called PARA. Have you heard of PARA? Yes. Yeah. So after much skirmishing, lawmakers decided... They needed to make some changes to PARA in order to make sure there'd be enough money in that fund for when future retirees need it. And what that meant for teachers is they now have to contribute 2% more of their pay into that fund. Lawmakers also raised the retirement age for new teachers from 58 to 64. So teachers saw that as a big loss. Now, you also asked about whether the legislature had done anything about school funding. And Grant, when I, when I first checked in with you, you actually were familiar with what happened to schools during the recession.
4: Yes, back in the recession in 2008, as Denver led the housing crash, a lot of funding was taken away from public schools to help address some of the difficulties in the economy. And unfortunately, although the economy has been doing very well lately, the funding for public schools has not been restored yet.
3: What were you wondering about that?
4: I was wondering if and when the public schools have a plan to restore the funding or if they're just going to try and get by with less and less funding each year.
3: Okay, I'll explain that a bit. So do you know what an IOU is? I do not. Okay, so an IOU means I owe you some money. I borrowed 60 bucks from you, Grant, and now I owe you 60 bucks. So each year since the recession, lawmakers have taken out hundreds of millions of dollars out of the amount they're supposed to send to schools and gave them an IOU saying, hey, we'll pay it back later. They use those hundreds of millions to instead prop up other areas of the budget like prisons or Medicaid. Altogether, the budget shortfall to schools since 2008 is 7.4 billion dollars. This year, lawmakers chipped away a bit at what's owed schools.
4: Yes. So when is the plan to pay that IOU off? And if if another recession comes up, is the IOU debt going to get even larger?
3: The IOU could get larger if we hit another recession, and there's no long-term plan to pay that back. So right now, Colorado funds its students at about $2,800 less than the national average. So that amounts to about $70,000 a classroom. So did you actually notice that the schools felt underfunded? What did you notice?
4: Well, I'll first off say that I I didn't feel the impact as much as maybe rural Colorado had felt as I did get the privilege to go to a school in the uh, Denver metro area. But I still noticed a lot of class sizes were particularly large. And teachers are having to buy school supplies with their own money. And a lot of... uh, support systems for students that were struggling were minimal to non-existent and yes the school tried to have programs to help students but they didn't have the adequate staffing for those programs and much of the time teachers had to stay until five six o'clock at night to help their students so if uh, school districts aren't getting the funding how are they going to even like try and restore funding or at least get by with significantly less funding
3: So school superintendents tried to start restoring the money to schools, and they came up with a plan in the winter to bring Colorado students up to the national average in terms of state funding. But that plan also would have required going to the voters in order to raise that money. Their idea did not pass in the legislature. So because it didn't pass to make ends meet, the second party of your question, class sizes are bigger. They cut back a lot, especially in rural areas, on electives like art, foreign languages, PE, vocational programs. Basically, anything that's not tested by the state can be viewed as expendable when, when budget cuts happen. Bus routes have been cut, building repairs pushed aside, and the teacher shortage has really grown. Superintendents tell me they just don't have the money to raise salaries in order to attract teachers. So sometimes they're having to use long-term subs or hire teacher candidates who aren't quite finished with their degree and may not even have a specialty in the subject in which they're supposed to teach.
4: Yes. How much longer can the current status quo be sustainable for before things just crumble?
3: I've been doing this beat for about seven years, and I'm hearing more and more, especially in the last year or two, that teachers in many school districts do feel they're at the breaking point. So many are pinning their hopes on a ballot measure this November, Amendment 73, to raise money for schools. But the last two attempts to do this have uh, voters have turned them down.
4: So uh, there's a very significant difference in uh, salaries across the state. Teachers in in urban Colorado, in particular along the Front Range Corridor, make a lot more money, salary rise, and... Rural Colorado, I've heard in rural Colorado, teachers make thirty grand a year or less sometimes. So uh, why is there such a disparity in pay? When
3: they have the same credentials. Exactly. So many states have what is called a statewide teacher pay scale. So everybody kind of plays by the same rules. Everybody's following the same ladder in terms of their pay. But Colorado is different. It's known as what is called a local control state. Have you heard that term? I have not. Yeah, so local control means that districts in Colorado make the decisions about curriculum, make the decisions about how much a teacher is paid, are basically in control of what happens in their own districts. So in some districts like Denver and Boulder, voters there have said yes uh, to local property taxes. That allows them to give teachers raises. In others like Douglas County and Jefferson County, Voters haven't really gone for property tax increases. Same thing with rural Colorado, where you see uh, a lot more poverty. Voters have also turned down measures. And this is the main reason you see a differential in pay. So, Grant, how do you feel about all this?
4: I'm very glad to get the facts so I, as a Coloradan, can effectively make decisions that will better our education system in the long run, even just through um, voting.
3: And so with that, Grant heads off. Put your helmet on. Put my helmet on. Yep.
0: <laughs> and Jenny Brundin, our education reporter, and always a mom warning him to wear <laughs> exactly. his helmet is in our studio. Buckle it up. You know, because this is a new project, we wanted to get a little more background on, on Colorado Wonders, Jenny.
3: Yes. What CPR News is doing here is creating a forum for you to ask us your burning questions about the state. You know, so what things that you find yourself thinking about, what's the deal with that? What, What's that all about? Ask us and we'll see what we can find out. We've already got reporters covering a lot of these issues like growth, water supplies. Maybe you've wondered about a public art project. And there are obviously more education questions, too. Grant came in and kind of grilled you. Is that how this will always work? Not necessarily. There are all kinds of ways we'll report these stories. Uh, Yes, sometimes we'll ask you maybe to come along with us and find out the answer with us together. The important thing is we want to tap your curiosity.
0: How did it feel to have a listener questioning
3: you? I absolutely love this. It helps bring me closer to what Coloradans are thinking about, what's confusing to them. And I have to hand it to Grant. This was the most complex, one of the most complex topics to understand. I especially loved hearing directly from a student. We often just hear from adults on this topic. And I loved him asking me direct questions and also getting to hear his perspective about what's really going on in schools.
0: Jenny Brundine there, our education reporter. What questions do you have about Colorado? It's people, policy, places. Go to cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders and tell us what you wonder about. Is Colorado a red state, a blue state, or something in between? We are calling a new podcast Purplish because that's in many ways what Colorado is. This podcast delves into Colorado's political identity, looks at the issues that shape our state, especially as we count down to Election Day. You can hear Purplish, not just by downloading it, but Mondays here on Colorado Matters, starting today. Here's its creator and host, Sam Brash. And we're going to kick it off with a story
1: about the power of Colorado voters. Because it's easy to think of politicians as the ones who make the laws. You know, some of them are literally called lawmakers. But in Colorado and in 20 other states, voters can propose and pass laws themselves. That's called the initiative process. It's especially powerful here, which can lead to some crazy scenes. Like this one. So I'm going to give you this. This is a recorder. Um, Mike's it starts at a food truck food festival year. at Denver's okay, Civic Center Park. Back so in July, we're going to try and collect as many signatures. It's where I meet Kimmy Fry. What, what What do you think? What's a good goal?
2: I think a really good goal, I think, would be ten.
1: She's a bubbly 19-year-old with a pixie haircut, and at the time, Kimmy worked as a paid petition circulator for Colorado Rising. It's a coalition that wants to push new fracking sites farther from buildings and waterways, and it's faced fierce opposition from the oil and gas industry, which sees it as a direct threat. For months before I meet Kimmy, Colorado Rising had complained about protesters—people who follow them whenever they head out with a clipboard.
2: It's really intimidating, especially like later in the evening or like when I'm just like by myself. Luckily, I'm. A I want to
1: see this in person, so and Kimmy's boss, Brian Loma, has a plan.
2: So we have a text message number that we're supposed to send if we see canvassers.
1: Um, Loma says the number came from an anonymous source inside the oil and gas industry. He thinks this is how his opponents monitor his canvassers and pair them with protesters. So he decides to test it out and report Kimmy to the number himself. So now we're going to say food, trucks. We did it. Thank you for sending this in. Please reply with canvas if you see more. All right, so Kim is headed down the street. I find a spot to watch Kimmy, and after about 20 minutes. Hold on, she's just been approached by three young men. And yeah, they have signs. They have signs. What does it say? What? One of the signs is a banner that says, This petitioner wants to ban fracking in Colorado. So does Vladimir Putin.
3: Vladimir Putin. Wow.
1: These guys follow Kimmy with the banner, and whenever she approaches someone, they yell, Don't sign, don't sign. Here's what's really strange. The protesters are all young men in their teens and early 20s, and all of them say, this is just how they want to spend their summer in the heat, arguing about fracking. Have you ever been paid or asked to do this in any way? No sir. It's our First Amendment right? We're not out here causing any problems. We're just saying our mind, you know? if they really. Want and to it, at one point, a bystander decides this whole scene is very uncool.
4: I think consider stalking if you're impeding this woman's right to make a living she gets paid on each signature so every time you prevent someone from signing you or taking money out of her pocket how's that make you feel you you guys are too young you don't know what
1: so this week on purplish the initiative process it was meant to be a way for people to have a say in state government but it often turns into a shouting match with boatloads of cash on each side you're breaking the Oh. Thank you. Yes, you are. It's first yes, you. Has f- 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 it, it always living? been this bonkers? F- For an answer, we're gonna go way back to the moment Colorado voters won the right to make some of the rules. Ahead of November, groups and individuals are lining up to spend millions to convince voters on a range of Colorado ballot issues. Two years ago, the total spent over initiatives, $89 million. That's triple the amount spent in support of or against statewide candidates that year, including money from super PACs. That's kind of incredible, right? It means the initiative process is often the highest stakes political poker game in the state. So how'd Colorado get here? Hey, is this Daniel? This is. For an answer, I got in touch with this guy.
5: I'm Daniel Smith. I am the chair and a professor of political science at the University of Florida. From 1994 to 2003, I was on the faculty at the University of Denver.
1: When Smith first got here in the mid-90s, he was fascinated by the initiative process. He'd only seen voters lobbied on candidates before coming to Colorado. He'd never seen TV and radio ads trying to convince them on issues. So Smith started to dig into the process, which, in political nerd terms, is part of a package known as Direct Democracy— Three powers held by the public.
5: Yep. Uh, It's the citizen initiative.
1: Citizens can propose
5: a law. It is the popular referendum. Citizens can veto a law. And it is the recall.
1: Citizens can fire an elected official.
5: In all three cases, it's the citizens who initiate the process by collecting signatures, qualify a measure for the ballot, and put the measure on the ballot for citizens to adopt or reject.
1: Colorado is one of only eight states that give citizens all those powers, and most of them are in the West. So, how come? That's a really difficult question to get at. The answer is really about the West at the turn of the last century. That's when monopolies and robber barons dominated the biggest industries and the politicians.
5: These were well-entrenched interests who did not want citizens being able to make decisions on what the utility rates should be for the budding power industry or for the trolley system that was across Denver.
1: Around 1900, progressives decide to challenge those interests. They're led by Judge Benjamin Lindsay. He's a leading reformer and he ends up kind of being the man behind the curtain. The Alexander Hamilton pushing for direct democracy for Colorado voters. I've, I've looked up some pictures of him, kind of like a, a bald guy with a big mustache, fancy suits. Like, he, he looks like somebody who's pretty proper.
5: Very proper. And uh, again, not someone who's going to be wielding a pitchfork in the fields uh, concerned about crop prices and the monopoly railroads uh, getting them to market.
1: Lindsay didn't think the angry masses needed more pitchforks. They needed new tools within the democratic system.
5: They themselves will be government as opposed to
1: bystanders watching the party bosses manipulate the legislative process. But to do that, Lindsay has to use the legislative process and convince lawmakers to loosen their grip on power and share it with voters.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating tale in terms of this 10-year plan that that Judge Lindsay had to try to make Colorado a complete democracy.
1: So he and his allies start electing progressive politicians and in 1908 they score the biggest office in the state. John Chaffroth, a progressive democrat, wins the election for governor.
5: On this platform to become a more responsive leader to the citizenry as opposed to the special interests that Judge Lindsay and others were really dismayed with.
1: That year, progressives try to push direct democracy through the legislature. It dies, but then Governor Shafroth doubles down. He calls every lawmaker back to Denver and forces them to debate the idea for 24 days. Former President Teddy Roosevelt even takes a break from a hunting trip to come to the Capitol and lend his support.
5: I kind of want to imagine him riding down from Estes Park on his steed and into into Denver and, you know, whipping these lawmakers it into is, shape. Are the this is a campaign speech
1: from Roosevelt from around that time, after he broke with Republicans believe, and ran for president on the Bull Moose ticket.
3: I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe that the majority of the plain people of the United States will, day in and day out, make pure
2: mistakes in governing themselves. And any smaller class or body of men, no matter what their training, will make in trying to govern. I believe again that. And
1: with a final assist from TR, it passes. And the question of whether citizens should have these three powers to recall politicians, to reject laws, and to put new laws on the ballot that question goes appropriately before voters. And they passed it that November in 1910. Overwhelmingly. I I want to say it was a 74 75% approval rate to do this. So Coloradans give themselves the authority to make laws. It's supposed to shift the balance to the people and away from special interests. But almost immediately, things don't go exactly as planned.
5: Well, certainly Judge Lindsay had pet proposals along the lines that progressives at the time were interested in, in terms of a women's eight-hour workday and uh, minimum wages and working conditions and the like. But then there were other measures that were somewhat surprising. A measure in 1912 to have a, an official state fair down in Pueblo that would infuse state dollars into the fair, as opposed to having private associations control it. Another one with respect to advertising of political candidates and sample ballots in newspapers, which it turns out it was the newspaper industry that was behind this because they saw it as a guaranteed form of revenue. Mm. So those were, you know, special interest using the initiative process because those special Special interests didn't particularly
1: have success in the state legislature. And it wasn't just some special interests. Judge Lindsay's direct opponents get in on the game, too. Folks like
5: John Rockefeller and and Jay Gould, who were major industrialists, who were not terribly pleased with the progressive legislature in 1910-11, passing laws to put more protections on workers, specifically their own miners. And so they decided to put issues on the ballot, paying people to collect signatures, just like we see today, in order to try to overturn progressive legislation. In the end, there were 32 measures on the ballot.
1: Right. And 32, I think, is still a record today, right? We've never seen another ballot this long in Colorado.
5: And I'm sure many of your listeners hope never to see that ballot. <laughs> it was kind of the Wild West. And there was money to be made by those who were circulating the measures and and, and pushing
1: the initiative process way back in, in 1912. There definitely is this idea out there that there was some moment with the initiative process where it sort of lost its innocence. And it's only been more recently that all kinds of money has poured to advance special interests. You're saying that that's not really the case, right? Yeah, correct. There's not a lot that we haven't seen
5: when we actually turn back the clock and look critically at this process. The amount of money being spent on campaigns, the amount of special interests involved, the duplicity in the signature gathering process – these are all not new. They've been around for over a century in Colorado. Uh, we just have to look a little more critically and and take off our rose-colored glasses that there was somehow, a, you know, a, a halcyon days in which the process was golden, and and uh, we need to harken back to that. That's that's not the process. It's an instrument, an institution that
0: can be used uh, for good or evil. You're listening to Purplish, a new podcast from CPR News delving into the issues that shape Colorado as we near Election Day. Here again is CPR News reporter and Purplish host and creator Sam Brash.
1: We left off in 1912. That was the first year voters had the right to pass laws in Colorado, and special interests quickly got in on the action. Remember, it was a huge fight to get direct democracy. The funny thing is, though, that over the next 60 years or so, it kind of went in and out of favor. And then came 1970.
4: Today, Denver is the United States choice for hosting the 12th Winter Olympics. It is a most natural selection.
1: Denver wins the chance to host the 1976 Winter Olympics, and organizers promised it'd be a bargain compared to previous Olympic Games.
4: Already, nearly 80% of the facilities necessary to hold the 76 Games are constructed and ready.
1: But it quickly became clear that its backers had undersold the cost. Which worried Dick Lamb, a state representative and future governor. Really,
5: Dick Lamb came out of nowhere as a state lawmaker.
1: Again, Professor Daniel Smith.
5: And I don't think he was really an anti-growth individual, but he saw this as damaging his state.
1: So Lamb qualifies an initiative for the ballot.
5: That would change the state constitution to prohibit the state from levying any taxes or, or raising any revenue to bring the 76 Winter Olympics to Colorado.
1: And that passes in 1972. Colorado voters enshrine an amendment in the Constitution saying they'll contribute nothing to the upcoming Olympic Games.
5: It sends a pretty bad signal to the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, that maybe this is not the place where we want to be hosting the Winter Olympics.
1: Pretty quickly, organizers withdraw their invitation, making Denver the only city to ever reject the Olympics.
5: That measure really showed the power to a a generation or two of individuals who didn't see the initiative process being used like it was in the progressive era, some 60 years earlier, that the citizen's voice could be heard and could be heard loudly and could change not only state, but also national policy.
1: After that, Coloradans really get into ballot initiatives. In the following years, they all but ban underground nuclear tests, block state funds for abortion, enact strict term limits. And then in 1992, Colorado approves something that gets national attention. Amendment 2.
4: The people who work to protect civil rights for gays stormed the Democrats' victory party last night their pain and anger made a Clinton.
1: This measure
5: put on the ballot by conservative forces would have overridden the local ordinances by places like Boulder that protected gay and lesbians and their sexual orientation.
1: The amendment was so harsh that critics nicknamed Colorado the hate state. There were boycotts and, of course, a lawsuit.
4: I do not believe you can discriminate against somebody on the basis of their sexual orientation under the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution.
1: That's Roy Romer, Colorado's Democratic governor at the time. He opposed Amendment 2, but since he was leading the state, became the defendant in the lawsuit. Uh,
5: This measure ended up going all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court.
1: And it struck down.
5: But in many ways, that measure took... The eyes off the ball of a measure that had been on the ballot two previous cycles that was put on by
1: perennial gadfly Doug Bruce.
5: I am a crazy man.
1: (laughs) 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 Bruce was a dogged anti-tax crusader. CPR has a whole other podcast just about him called The Tax Man.
5: I'm crazy enough to believe all those things we were told in school about the consent of the governed, we the people.
1: Quick shameless plug, The Tax Man is great. Go listen to it after you're done with this. Anyway, 1992 was when voters finally got on board with Bruce's Taxpayers' Bill of Rights. It requires voter approval for new taxes in Colorado, and it also caps public spending. Whatever you make of that, it shows the raw power of direct democracy. Bruce radically changed how Colorado governs itself. He shifted the balance of power even further away from the legislature and to the voters.
5: It's not cynical. He is very authentic. He believes in what he believes substantively, and he uses those populist tropes and, and the narrative of giving citizens the right to, to vote on taxes in a very sincere way.
1: Tabor was fueled by grassroots energy. But think back to the start of the initiative process. Wealthy people and corporations quickly realized they could use the same tool to advance their goals. And that's never ended either. People like Ron Unce, an uber-wealthy businessman from California...
5: ...made his money out in Silicon Valley and and wanted to uh, have English-only public education. And thought, well, it's a lot cheaper to put this on the ballot in Colorado than it is in, in California. Let's put this
1: measure on the ballot. That initiative failed in 2002. And many other wealthy people have spent big on ballot issues in Colorado. Billionaire Philip Anschutz, even the current Democratic gubernatorial nominee Jared Polis... And there's a simple reason rich people like initiatives. You can only spend so much directly on candidates. But with initiatives, you can spend as much as you want.
5: The Supreme Court has made it very clear that the initiative process has many fewer regulations than electing candidates. And the reason is these are issues and issues can't be corrupted. Putting a measure on the ballot speaks for itself and it's not about getting something in return.
1: The court has also protected the key tool that turns money into ballot access, paid signature gathering. In 1988, the high court struck down a Colorado law banning the practice, ruling it limited political speech protected by the First Amendment. Bottom line?
5: Colorado, because it is so relatively inexpensive to qualify measures for the ballot, it's a way to to test the water.
1: In a lot of ways, that's the reason Colorado is a laboratory of democracy. It's a place where industries, wealthy people, or passionate groups can afford to test out their ideas for how society should work. But it's clear Colorado voters are wondering if the laboratory needs some safety updates. Just two years ago, they approved an initiative called Raise the Bar. It makes it harder to pass constitutional amendments at the ballot. In other words, 106 years after they became their own lawmakers, Colorado voters checked that power and Made it tougher to use elections to conduct more or less permanent experiments with state government.
5: Yeah, I mean you're absolutely right. I mean it's, it's it is this laboratory. Um, is it good for Colorado? Well, I have faith in Colorado voters to be able to sniff these out, and I, I think Coloradans can do that pretty well. And and there are very few instances in which uh, voters are duped by uh, the advertising or or the message. So think about it as, as a way to send a signal nationally on whether or not this is something that other states should consider or
1: take a, a more skeptical view of. And one thing I'm really curious about is given all the research you've done about direct democracy uh, in Colorado and elsewhere, how have you ended up feeling about the whole process?
5: Yeah, I'm, I'm strongly ambivalent. About direct democracy. I think there are some excellent aspects of allowing citizens to have a voice, as people like Judge Lindsay were advocating uh, more than 100 years ago. I really do think it helps to educate the public about issues when you have to make those decisions outside of. Uh, king supers of of whether or not you're going to sign a petition on a particular issue on the flip side the idea that we can take issues and have just binary choices that you're either for or against it as opposed to a more nuanced understanding is something that the initiative process is not very good at doing put on top of that sometimes you know as a citizen you like what the legislature is doing you like the governor I think a lot of the way people think about the initiative process in places like Colorado and beyond is whether you're currently a winner or a loser in the current political battles that are going on.
1: Hey, 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 uh, one last thing. I can't run you through 100-plus years of history and not catch you up on this election. Because, as of now, the ballot is officially set in Colorado, pending any legal challenges. That's it for this week's episode. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News.
0: The new podcast Purplish from CPR News. Next time, how money factors into ballot issues and the gubernatorial race. You can subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts and hear it Mondays right here. Before we go, an invitation to see radio in the making. On Thursday night, we'll tape an episode of Colorado Matters at the Newman Center in Denver. My guest on stage will be comedian and author Adam Caton-Holland. He describes his new book, Tragedy Plus Time, as a tragicomic memoir. It's about a life-changing event that hit his family just as Adam was making it big in Hollywood. The book is really sad at times, funny at others... Join us Thursday evening. Tickets are at CPR.org. Again, CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.